This is Maya Thomas. I am the DSC podcast producer, and I just wanted to give you a quick rundown of DSC as an organisation before we get started. DSC is a team of 33 people across Australia, all working together to bring specialised training and consulting expertise to providers in the disability sector. Our focus is on helping providers to survive and thrive in the NDIS, and our purpose is better outcomes for people with disability. Welcome to Disability Done Different, Candid Conversations. My name is Evie Norfell and I'm joined in the studio today by the second best director of Disability Services Consulting, Roland Norfell. I'd have to agree with that. (laughs) And who's the best director? Of DAC? Yeah. That'd be Vanessa Toy, your wife and my stepmother. (laughs) (laughs) And our guest today is Frank Krupe, the CEO of Milferenko and one of our favourite people in the sector. We've been wanting to get Frank on the podcast for a long time, haven't we? We have. And it was it proved exactly what we thought it would, except that he didn't swear as much as we expected. Yeah. Why, why did we want to get Frank on the podcast? Because he's doing things differently. He is disability done different. He's got a story to tell and a, a way of making it happen. Mm. You don't meet many organizations like Milper and Crew, and it's tough to put into words what's different about them. I think Frank's done a pretty good job of expressing it himself. We hope you'll be able to see what we find so special about them. Yeah, that's true. All right, here's what's going to happen now. Hello and welcome to our podcast. We are DSC. Your turn. You're the boss. Disability Disability done done different. different. Candid conversations. Hope you're ready because we're starting. So 18 years as the CEO of Milparinka, Frank, and you still haven't been able to get an honest job. No, they've tried to get rid of me, but I just hang around a lot. Cool. And before Frank was um, CEO at Milparinka, he was in community health. He was in... What else were you in? Council. Councils and those sort of things. But before mm-hmm. that, he was, it was in disability way back in the days of the institutions of Sunbury and Kingsbury. And like a, a lot of the older um, people, including myself, disability has somehow pulled you back in again. What, yeah. What's the attraction? Why do you stick with disability for so long, Frank? Oh, I think it's basically just the connection to people's lives. I, I like working in a place that isn't, isn't huge. Milperink is not a big place and I can still stay connected to to people a lot of the other roles I had people became numbers and um, were very distant from the work you did whereas disability I find it's able you're able to stay a lot closer and connected and uh, and can touch people in different ways that's not the case in every organization but we know Milperinka are particularly good at keeping close and we, when we talk about an organization that's um, that's doing well, that's got a good culture, that's got a close connection to people. We often talk about the distance between the CEO and the frontline workers. And I don't think it's unfair to say that Milprinka has a particularly short, short distance there. Uh, yes, and, 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 it's quite, and it's quite deliberate the way that we do that. And, and you know, one of the ways we do it is by understanding that there's actually no difference between the job we do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, most direct staff, a direct staff member may be have the role of of supporting someone to develop communication skills, um, but I also have a role in helping someone develop communication skills because I have to ensure the capacity is there. Um, so we, we we all live on the same line of what well, the job we're doing. Mm-hmm. We don't we don't do see that as a separate role. Yeah, I, I I was struggling to ask you that question there because what what I wanted to say was when we talk about organisations who do good customer service, that's what it looks like. Yeah. So I'm diving straight in with a word that I know you hate. You pulled me off on it before. So t- more than more than pulled you up on a Frank sent you home in tears, which he probably doesn't know. <laughs> so <laughs> well, tell us the sent story. Me home about- in tears. He sent me an email while I was already at home that put me into. Oh. So tell us about <laughs> the email and then we'll, 
so, so I think it was, it's probably two or three years ago. It's probably when I just started in the sector. I was doing some work with uh, some of your managers. I can't remember exactly what it was, some kind of NDIS 101 session. And I said something along the lines of like, you know, it's how you support your customers. Oh, no, I won't say customers. No, I will say customers. And then I just carried on and nobody said anything. And then you sent me a long email that night about all the reasons that you didn't want me to ever use the word customer again and how it had been such a faux pas. And I felt a little bit sensitive about it. Oh. Well, I'm sorry, but I, but at least but you you're not haven't sorry used at all. Again, so that's good. Oh, oh no, oh, no I use it all the time. Yes, but not with us. Tell you us, were. tell us what you've got against customer, Frank. Uh, look, you know, it's it's really that we work with people. We 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 work with people to help them get a life, the life that they want. Um, and I don't necessarily think that they're coming to us to to buy that from us or, or for us to sell that to them. We work in partnership with people to along that journey. And so customer just doesn't fit. You know, a lot of words don't fit. You know, I don't think client fits. Mm. You know, I don't think... Um, a participant doesn't always fit. You know, people ask us what do we want to call people. I say, well, people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I want to combine a couple of questions both to Evie and to Frank. Evie, your first impressions of Milparinka, and then Frank, will you tell us about Milparinka? And you were just speaking about your journey, your road to Damascus moment over over ten years ago at Milparinka. But Evie, putting you on the spot, do you remember? Oh, it's a little while ago now. Let me help you. The first thing you got you we noticed when we rang Milparinka was Frank answered the phone. So you've got the CEO answering the phone before we got there. When we turned up, do you remember the receptionist? No. Person with quite severe disabilities. So we're already experiencing something quite different to most other organisations we've worked with. One of my, I, I don't remember, I can't say I remember my overall impression, but one one memory that I'll probably always remember, you might not, we can cut this out if you don't want. So, so one thing I remember is um, I had a meeting with you in your office and somebody, one of the people you support came and knocked on the, I don't think she knocked on the door, she just came in. She was like, oh, what are you doing here? You left your coffee here overnight and now the room stinks. And you told her like, shut up, go away, I'm in the middle of a meeting and you often talk to people like that like to the consultants and to your staff and i was like now that's true equality (laughs) everybody everybody gets abused equally exactly everybody has the opportunity to cop it from frank exactly so tell us about milparinka and the road to damascus frank oh well milparinka is a um traditional or has been in the past traditional day service uh, that provided supports to, to people in groups predominantly. And look, about about 10 years ago, I, I read an article from a lady called Deb Roger, who, who many people will know. Yeah. And in that article, um, it was an interview she did, and she spoke about uh, love, she spoke about valued lives, she spoke about uh, excitement, she spoke about what people were doing in their lives in the community but not going for coffee, but living lives where they were in relationships with people, where they were pursuing their own interests, and and was really taken by that article. So well, why can I just jump in because I know where the story's going? But why did that one article? Because there's been a lot of stuff like that over the decades, but this one reached out and grabbed you. Uh, because it wasn't full of motherhood statements. Uh-huh. I know Deb, and I I knew that she was working with people at a really real level um, and that she was talking about lives that she knew and connected with. And 
you could follow the storyline that she was telling. And one of the things that we find is it's always better when someone can tell you a detailed story um, as opposed mm. to just a few lines of, of rhetoric. So the this. story, she told you a story that spoke to you authentically and it captured your imagination. Yes. And, yeah. it, and it led to a very significant change in your approach and the service with with which you work approach. Oh, yeah, it did. Um, the, we, we read the article. I, I made my managers read it or asked them to read it. Um, and then we walked around the building and we looked at people and we asked, why isn't their life as good as the lives we're reading about? And look, we came to the conclusion that we thought we were probably getting in the way of those lives and we needed to do something um, different. So uh, the first thing we did different was got Deb to come and talk to us and that was like inviting the devil into your home because Mm -hmm. Deb really doesn't like group supports and and um, there's no middle ground so so um, we started conversations about how we could be better in people's lives at that point. So all these years on and you and we'll talk quite a bit as we go about the things that you're doing differently you still have some groups? Oh yes yeah we still got some groups and, and a lot of people come to us and and over the years, we've been learning to use the groups as stepping stones uh-huh. rather than, than blocks where people sit forever because sometimes people just won't come in to, to access the services because they can't, they can't visualise the story. They yes. can't visualise the, the journey until they can trust us and, and have more conversations mm. with us and, and other people at Milparinka. And so one of the things about Milparinka, which I noted, was that you have a large number of attendees but the centre is not where they are. So you'll come in on any one day and the number of people that are participating in Milparinka is much larger than the number of the people that are at the centre. Oh, yeah, but that in itself isn't a, isn't a very good measure that we're doing something good. Uh-huh. Um, in, in part it is because, you know, probably 30% of the people who now who now use Milparinka for supports never come into the centre. Others, you're right, come into groups and then go out and do what we would think is valued activities and others would come in and just go out in group activities, albeit small group activities, but they're just doing activities during the day and they might... They've obviously got some value to those individuals, but they're not. Those group activities aren't life creating. Sure. Um, they're 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 providing someone with a service rather than the opportunity to develop a life. Whereas a whole lot of other people, so it's a spectrum. We have the groups that that are really activity based at one end, and and right along that spectrum, we have um, people uh, people who are taking part in in what we would call you know, value life-building opportunities. Yeah. Well, let's go, can I go... I want to go back one step and just talk about what one person at a time, what Milparink is trying to achieve and what, what the goals are. And maybe if I could do it in terms of... Imagine Evie's suddenly said, I've had a gut full of doing this sort of consulting online training work, and she's got a job running an old-fashioned service in the country. And she thinks, oh, look, I'll talk to Frank before I go. And, Frank, what be, would be your three tips for Evie about getting services right now that she's the boss of a country service for people with disability oh there's three um look i i think that that one of the first things i'd say is immediately rethink how you measure success and understand that success can only be measured in the context of each individual person telling you their life is fulfilled 
uh, or that their life is better or they've got connections. Because as soon as you do, as soon as uh, you change that, then it's going to focus you on, on talking and looking at individuals. Uh, the other thing is, I would say, adopt a, adopt a rule that says uh, nothing happens without me. Um, so that there's no conversations about a person and their future without the family or the person being involved in it because somehow you have to convince the staff that they are not the smartest people in the room because it's a real problem for disability services where people think, oh, gosh, yeah, we know, and we don't know. You know the, the people know their own lives. Of course they know their own lives better and, and what they want. Um, and then I'd say invite someone in who hates what you do but has a better idea uh, you know not someone who just hates but someone who who wants something better um to challenge you and then because all you what you're going to do there is have conversations yeah. that that make it better then you can think about your mechanics later yeah so in my work training support coordinators, Frank, I mentioned to you outside, I've noticed in the last year that a lot of the training content, like what people are demanding and the questions they come with, are decreasingly about how to actually talk to somebody about the life they want to live and how to put things in place. And it's becoming more of the technical detail about what to say in the planning meeting, you know, what people can and can't spend their money on and what item to use in the price guide to do that. And I was saying to you, partly when I try to talk about talking to people about life and goals and how to put all that stuff in place, people are like, yeah, yeah, I get it. But I know that they don't get it. And I know that they don't get it because I know that I don't get it. If I had a person with a disability in front of me, I wouldn't probably be able to have the conversation and be able to know what the next steps are about what does a life of meaning look like to you and, and what do we need to do to get there. And what's really struck me about the people that I've met from Milparinka is that they do get it. And so my question to you, Frank, is can you teach it? Or do people come with come to Milparinka already with that mindset or a set of values? How much can you teach and how much is already set in stone? I think that um, it, can be, it can be taught, but you've got to... Um, I think what you've got to do is you've got to understand who you're looking for and who can be taught. And, for example, you know, one of the things we may, you may not know about this is that, is that we've had over the years some exceptional staff who are able to, to work with people to identify their, uh, their life interests, what they value, what their passions are, and then, then identify the steps that make sense for that. And what we did was we went away and, and, um, and went to a management consultant, um, not a management consultant, but a management um, psychologist, and got him to do assessments on those people to try and understand what was their values base that enabled them to do those things. And there were things like, um, and the things that came out was someone who didn't need to be in control and was able to, to shift their thinking very, very quickly in response to somebody someone who's able to to have a passion and share it but then put that passion aside so that someone else can live their passion but what they've shared with them what they've showed them is not their passion but their ability to talk about it Um, and so we when we interview for people look at those characteristics because I I think it's really important that that you get the right people from the beginning. So when people come to us for employment, we don't look for disability 
qualification so much because look what we what we'd say is oh you you know quite enough to do enough damage to people um and some people come in with disability qualification they're they're fantastic of course but um we look for for people who have those characteristics who are who are expansive in their thinking but can then take that expansive thinking and and see opportunity so frank i want to jump in there because you said a couple of things you're looking for people who can let go of control and people who are flexible and so I've been involved in a number of programs, one which was a parent support. It wasn't parent support, it was parents taking control of their lives. And I've probably trained three or 400 workers in this method of facilitating parents to take control of their lives. And I reckon about five of them were able to let go of control. When they get in tricky situations, when it gets stressful, they fall back on their, their quasi-qualifications, like their social work qualifications or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what comes out because they're stressed. Yeah. In that moment of real crisis, they need to let go of control and they can't yes. do it. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking for the rarest bird available as someone who can let go of control, this is going somewhere else, somewhere who's really flexible, and you're paying them 30 bucks an hour or less, then, you know, you've really got to look outside the box. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you do have to look outside the box, and, and it does get and it does get hard with that level of, of pay. But of course, some people pay above award and uh, and stuff like that. But but the other thing is too is that uh, before respect, because you know, we've had the same same issue, you're training the wrong people. Yeah. Um, because yeah. because one of the things that, that you know you can you can have the right staff, and we and look and we we like anybody, we get right staff and we get some wrong staff, and we have to do some corrections, but. The people you really need to to train and educate is families. Um, we spend, uh, you know, it's a bit less since the NDIS, but up to up to a couple of years ago, we spent fifty percent of our annual annual training budget on giving families an opportunity to be educated and not educated about about um, about what a service looks like and what it should be, but educated about hang on your entitlement to. To, to be right, to make demands, to say and say I want. So when you when when and that's been the biggest driver, not not the clever staff, the the families that we that we educated by having people like Michael Kendrick and Deborah Jay and other people and just workshops and come in and talk about life and what it looks like, is that they're the ones that 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 move the staff better because they come in and say that's not good enough. I want this. I know that. That, that life is bigger than what you're offering me and um, and that's look that that for us that that's much more important than training staff and when we train parents we bring staff into the room so that they can hear uh, and share the conversations and so for example one of the things we, we've done traditionally is send people to uh, or, or give people the opportunity to go to the life of um, the the uh, belonging matters conferences that are really yeah. family based and we would send well, not send but i'd give the opportunity for say 11 12 families to go there and they would go there and we'd also send 11 or 12 staff to sit with them so that when the families got excited about what they were hearing they could talk to the staff about it and put pressure on and the staff could do, do that back mm-hmm. so you know sort of it's getting the right staff is only a small part of that 
Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I just want to put a plug in for Michael Kendrick and Deb Rojo. So Michael Kendrick, if you Google his name, K-E-N-D-R-I-C-K, you'll find a huge body of work. He's been coming to Australia for how long, Frank? Oh, well over 25 years. And doing a huge amount to um, support people to become person-centred, one person at a time. And tragically, you told me before that we can't afford to bring him over much more with the NDIS. Well, the NDIS doesn't leave a lot of money for training. Yep. And Deb Rojo, R-O-U-G-E-T, is Belonging Matters, and she's Australian-based and doing great work. So just um, Google Deb and Michael, and you'll learn a lot just from reading their work and the conferences that Deb's running. I want to go back to families. One of the things that uh, I really love about um, Milparinka, and I want to ask if you're still doing it, is you had uh, one of your um, senior family members, someone who'd been there for a while, is really the first point of contact when families come into the service to greet and help families navigate what they're about to experience. Are you still doing that? Does it still work? Um, yes, yes, of course we're still doing it. I just met, I was meeting with Brenda earlier this week. It's sort of a little bit different. It, it, it's partly as you describe it, but mm-hmm. it's partly a little bit different. And Bre- because Brenda, Brenda Sherman, is a family member who Brenda and her husband Bruce, has, uh, Bruce, have helped their daughter Kim, who's got in, in very high needs to live a, a life in her own home in the community um, with a whole lot of really valued roles and activities. And Kim has more friends than I do, which isn't hard. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and she's surrounded by people who bring value and, and relationship to her life. Um, and what we use Brenda for is more uh, a little bit to navigate the system, but to have conversations with families so that they can see what opportunities they can they can make happen um, to see that it doesn't have to be just a, a group center to see when we have families who come to us and they say because uh, we're, we're awful to come to because if people come to us and say what can you give us we say oh, well nothing you know we don't know you tell us who you are and and what you want uh, and that's really hard for some families so Brenda can really help people identify that so that it, it be- and creates this new search for people into the into a life, a broader life. Yeah, a genuine soft point of entry. We, we, we're talking quite a bit about the NDIS, which we don't always do. And Frank, you've talked about the pressure it's placing on people with complex needs. You've talked about some of the pressure it's putting on families. But when you and I spoke the other day, you were talking about the pressure it's putting on you, taking uh, you away from your um, first love. Yes, yeah, yeah not, not yeah, your wife, who is yeah, your first yeah, love, sorry, your second love. Oh, I should argue that. <laughs> so, uh, look, it's taking me away from talking to people. You know, uh, I guess I, I, as a CEO, have a slightly different road, role to to a lot of others, and I get the opportunity to spend a, a lot of my uh, traditionally a lot of my week talking to people about their lives and where they're heading, and uh, and people should have that because in the end, when it comes to the organisation, if something goes wrong, I'm the person that's going to come. Uh, people are going to come to from for big decisions and. Uh, and I should know people. I should be able to understand the context of life, what the decision makes. But the NDIS has um, taken that. It's created incredible bureaucracy and it's it's stolen that. So so what we have now is people like myself and Claudia Veneris, who, who works with us, and, and Sam and, and stuff, um, spending a lot of time on computers counting. And one of the things, one of the things we we prized ourselves on uh, over the years, and we know is is a critical success measure, is to is to traditionally not talk to people about money, but talk to people about lives. Because when people talk about lives, they're thinking, but money doesn't think. 
money just buys, you know, mm-hmm. um, and it can buy a lot of rubbish, in, in, especially in terms of disability services. Um, and so it shifted the conversation to, to money um, and it shifted our focus in our work onto computers. And it's really scary because what it does is it takes away the people with the most experience from people's lives, which mm. is a you know, is a, it a transition? Is it something we're going through? You'll get out. The oh, other I side? think uh, no. We're we're working hard to identify ways to move past it. There's no there's um, no doubt about that. And I think that I think that with time, um, we'll move past it. But but that's us because we're prepared to make that effort. I'm, I, and there'll be others who make that effort as well. But but um, I think the the residue that's going to leave in terms of organisations ability to focus on people's lives rather than the mechanics of what you can afford or not afford um, is going to be pretty horrendous. So one of our first um, early NDI's consulting gigs was with Milparinka. We came out and we worked with you. And I remember the overall conclusion was, you guys are running pretty thin, pretty lean. You're very focused on one person at a time. You're going to find this a lot easier transition than most of the other services. So were we full of shit? Uh, no, I think everyone's found it hard, yep. um, and we've found it um, we've found it hard as well. Um, we've and we were going to find it easy because we've for the last ten years um, been giving people their own money and saying, "Look, it's your money. Yep. We'll just hold it for you. Tell yep. us how to spend it." Yep. Yep. Um, and that, uh, but that didn't translate to the NDIS. The NDIS is much more. Um, category based so whereas we'd say to people look here's a round circle here's your money where do you want to where do you want to use it to get a life the NDIS comes along and says well here's a here's a a row of of boxes and there's categories that you fit into spend that money to get a life it doesn't it doesn't generate the same there has to be you know it's lost that the, the the conversation about money has lost that that overall meshing that needs to happen for for a life to happen Life is confusing and, and complex and people change their mind. And Yeah, it reminds me what you're saying, me of this research I've heard of, we'll have to find the source and put it in the show notes, is that contrary to what you might think, that category approach, which I think is a bureaucrat's way of trying to keep more control over the money, the research would suggest when you look at other countries who've done individualised funding, that the less restrictions you put on the way that people can spend their funds, you know, for example, to have one bucket that people can choose to spend how they want, the less fraud you end up with. So the more trust you give people, the more they end up being trustworthy, trustworthy which yeah. is so interesting. And so we've heard that that evidence has been has been circulated fairly widely at the NDIA and the bureaucrats rejected fairly wholeheartedly. But does it accord so with your experience, Frank? The more trust oh, you give people, the more trustworthy they are? Oh, yes. You no, know, beforehand we were able to, to give people... Um, uh, just a, you know, it's like that a global bucket of money and say okay uh, where is it where where is the best outcome for you and we saw outcomes it's not like we can imagine them we saw people getting getting jobs and we saw people moving out of home and we saw people um, building relationships with like-minded people rather than just people who share a disability um, and those things happen because families are creative. Of course, families are trustworthy. They love their children. They yeah. love their sons and daughters. They love yeah. their brothers and sisters. It's, um, what I, so what I've seen earlier this week, I was speaking to a group of support coordinators and we were talking about how you can spend your NDIS funds. And in particular, we were talking about short-term accommodation funding, which is what we now call what we would have once called respite. And you can use that funding to pay for 
uh, a full service, which includes food, support, activities, and uh, the accommodation while you're there. So there's nothing stopping a person from using that funding to go to an Airbnb, go to a restaurant while they're there, have the support worker come with them, and go to an activity that's not bowling. Yes. But when you present that to people, they're like, what? With NDIS funds? And it's like, what's the assumptions that are going on there that are stopping people from engaging with that being a realistic possibility? Does the service have to be bad and boring for it to be NDIS funded? It's always like this outrage that NDIS funds can be spent on something that we might want to do. Uh, just a comment on that, I guess. Um, what you're describing in people going out, we we do. Um, yeah. You know, we uh, people people stay over in our home and they go out for the night and they they enjoy themselves. The families go away and they, and they they spend that money in a much better way in a much more cost efficient way too yeah, it's cheaper too. Um, but it's part of the problem I, I think that when you um, you talk about how uh, why does that happen it happens because you've gone to a sector that was basically non-creative yeah. and said be creative and then given them boxes to be creative in yeah. and expect good things to happen I, I think that's a, that's maybe a stretch of the imagination and yes. they may need to really think that because if you want creative people, um, you've got to give them space to be creative. But it's not going to start with um, disability services historically. Speaking of creativity, Frank, one of the things I've heard you say recently is organisations that are tinkering at the edges, changing shape a little bit, giving themselves a refresh or a rebrand and expecting the organisations to be different but still expecting people with disability to fit into their service. Does that... You remember? Oh, yeah, yeah. I look, I think there's no, there's no question. I don't mean to sound pessimistic, but I do mean to sound challenging. You know, I think that that the problem with disability services in general is that there has always been, and I don't think it's changed under the NDIS. In fact, I think it's becoming worse under the NDIS. There has always been a universal commitment to the words. Yeah, and there has almost been a total universal failure to put those words into practice and uh, I think that to to any large extent you know um, uh, of course good things happen but not enough and I think that yes there is a lot of tinkering um, and there is a lot of people uh, what people are, are better at now I think from from our experience because we do talk to a lot of services and people come to us and you know we get a lot of people coming from other services to us at the moment um, what people are really good at now is the skill is marketing the skills not the skills not helping someone get a life um, and that's you know when you talk about that tinkering that's what that's what we see yeah you know, we uh, see we see people say we are here to to help people be people but then they set rules that say no you're not allowed to buy us a christmas present and we're not allowed to buy you one because that's a a service provider provider um, relationship no you're not allowed to go to the shops and buy me something on the way to your work in literally these are rules that people have um, who have these sort of mottos and and we would break why why do they need to happen yeah. yeah, because of risk, I suppose. When I think about, for me, one of the biggest tragedies of the failure for the words to translate to action is the I in NDIS, that insurance approach. 
Um, and when we look at what the insurance approach is all about, it's about investing now to save later. It's not just about having this year-to-year approach. It's really looking at what would make the biggest difference in someone's life. And capacity building. It's capacity building. Yep. And, you know, with a very, uh, you know, mathematical approach to it, how can we make it so that they need less support across their life, paid support? And when I think about the work, the kind of work that Milparinka wants to do, those kinds of conversations about getting a life, as you say, the kind of work that a support coordinator can do if they do it really, really well, we just don't see that being funded because that lifetime approach that's in the words, that insurance approach just isn't being translated because what's happening is we're ending up with that tinkering again with the same people who worked for the previous funding systems, working as planners for the NDIA for a variety of other reasons. We're ending up with that year-by-year approach still being applied in planning and people not having that lifetime perspective applied to their current plans. Yep. Not to get too technical about it, but that that, yeah. that drives uh, look, me absolutely crazy. It is. And look, the insurance aspect of the NDIA is... Is not a bad thing. That's a great concept a to invest design. so to invest so that people are better off later on. But you you don't invest by just funding people's needs or what's broken in them. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you invest by 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 funding the the things that they're able to be passionate about and their interests, so they can they can pursue. But also you invest in in the people around them being able to spend time thinking, mm-hmm. being able to plan, being able to to educate, being able to to go and search communities for the opportunities. And, um, yeah, we spend a lot of time when someone tells us, I want to work in a cafe. Well, that might be a cafe that's got lots of noise or they uh, particular types of work or, you know, focus on... on you know, the being not crowded at certain times of the day, you've got to walk around and find those places. And the exercise you actually it. did when we were there, you're still doing it. it. Took four or five support workers to a corner and told them to go away for yeah, a couple yeah, of hours. We still and, do that. Yeah, and so, and tell us about the exercise. Well, it's really about about getting people used to finding um, opportunities for people. So, so what we what we would say to people is, look, talk to someone about what it is they want in their life and and you know and, and in this case we're looking for people who may want to be connected to their local community they may want to go to to um build a relationship in a club they may want to work in a, a different type of shop or they might want to be involved in the council and then we just set our staff loose on the corner and say look go and find something that you think suits and what they what you learn is that not everything fits you don't go to, to five shops and ask, hang on, can you create an opportunity for someone with us? You go to the one shop that says, can you create an opportunity for us? Because we've got someone who we think will really fit in here because this is what you do and this is what they want. Mm. Uh, and that's um, uh, that's a, a really good experience for staff to, to do. Um, Isn't that uh, but, funny how that's... But that's you can't fund unique. it now. No, but isn't it funny how that's unique? Because it, it's, again, for me, one of those examples where we wouldn't think it's unusual to do outside of a disability context. Like, if I think about applying for a job, you know, anytime we have a job ad and we have people apply and it's just so obvious they've sent something generic that they're just throwing out their net really wide. You're just like, this is not a fit. And then when you get the email from somebody who says, I really love DSC, this is what I think is pretty unique about you, this is why I think I'd be a fit, it's like, yes, fantastic, let's start a conversation. Yes. So it's so funny when you translate 
translate that to disability and say we look for an opportunity that's going to be well suited for both parties and then we try to pursue it it's like wow that's an interesting idea uh, look, uh, <laughs> uh, like we have always been surprised you know and and we don't usually accept it and you know you say you say it's unique and we've always been surprised and very disappointed when people come and say that some of the stuff we do in people's lives to to you know do more than go to a cafe for a cup of coffee or go to a movie but to actually find a life and and pursue interests and people tell us gee that's that's exceptional and we think what a load of rubbish it's just a life <laughs> you know it's just taking steps forward yeah. um and it's just wanting better in people's lives mm. so frank your road to damascus story is about deborah jay mine's about a guy called um, hans becker at humanis yes. a dutch guy who just blew me away with the way he was reinventing aged care in in the netherlands in rotterdam and he took highly institutionalised settings and turned them into community-based bars and restaurants and places full of light and life and movement. And people wanted to be there. They came from outside the community to be part of Becker's um, vision. They were called Apartments for Life. I'm sure they still are. Anyway, when going back there a couple of times, I spotted Becker's role was to, as the CEO, um, 3,000 residents, probably that many staff. You generally have, you know, a large number of staff for that many residents across 13 buildings. When we walked through the buildings with him, he was constantly playing policeman as well as coach. And he'd see a chair that was an institutionalised looking chair and he would flip and he would say, we don't have chairs that look like this. We have Chesterfields and a Chesterfield costs half as much as this stupid chair and get it out of here. And he'd see things. He was constantly policing everything he did because the institution has a way of reinventing itself. It's the forces to institutionalise, to codify, to tra- make people transaction are stronger than they are to be free and take control like you're talking about. I also noticed that with you. You've got quite a bit of the cop about you at Milparinka. Mm-hmm. You're constantly policing the forces at work to go back to being non-individualised, non-one person at a time. Is, is that unfair? Oh, no, no, it's, it's very true. And it's, and it's, um, it's not accidental at all. It's, uh, we have a very strong philosophy that leadership starts at the top. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's surprising how many, how many leadership stuff doesn't. Um, and but when we look at leadership, it's not, um, you know, I, I don't think of myself as a CEO who runs an organisation. I think of myself as a CEO whose job is just like anyone else's to, to help someone get the life they want. Uh, and um, so we're constantly measuring by that standard. And that's what we want all of our leaders to, to be doing is to is to pursue that. And, and you know, for example, um, example of, of you know leading from the top is that you know we focus pay a lot of money on out for communication aids because uh, and communication training because we, we we know that people can't tell us what they want unless they can communicate yeah, yeah. And, and we've seen massive changes in people because of that capacity and one of those main words is is keywords training now um, I went and became a, a qualified keyword trainer. I, can, I could run workshops, but I, I can't now. And never to be a trainer, but so that people could see my interest and that when I can talk to a direct care staff or a family member about signing and the impact of it and how to go about it at, at, at a layman's level and, a, and a, 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 you know, I guess a, a more professional level, um, but it makes a, a, a massive difference because people know you're interested. The expectation 
of that role travels right through the agency. Yeah, I'll always remember when I came to Milparinka to meet your communications manager, expecting that person to be a marketing manager <laughs> and finding out, no, in fact, she was responsible for implementing your communication skills yeah. programs. Yeah. Frank, you've been speaking so much about Get a Life. Well, you've been talking, I quickly Googled one of my favorite Lunik poems. So I just want to read a couple of lines out of it. It's called A Life. Anyone can get a life. Anyone can lose it. But who will dare to inhabit the thing and use it? Yeah. Do you know that? No, I don't. But, but see, I reckon that could be the motto of a lot of what you're trying to do at Milparenka is yeah. I can't tell you the number of times you've just talked about getting a life. Oh, um, right, yeah. yeah I don't, don't know. Well, that's what we do. That's yeah, like, uh, uh, interesting. So can, I, I will finish with one more question, which is the corruption of language. So you were talking about capacity building before <laughs> Frank decided if you didn't pick it up yeah. on the mic. Um, Speaking of corruption of language, this has so far been a very PG podcast yes, for I a Frank Croupy podcast. Yeah, he's behaved. <laughs> yeah, I, have, I have behaved. Well done, yeah. Frank. Yeah, no, it's good. Thank so you. Talk, you don't need any more lead in that. Talk us about the corruption of the language that you've been trying to use. That You know, everybody's doing capacity building. What's different about yours, yeah. Frank? Uh, look, it's part of the... When um, we started on our journey, I, I guess we were... Um, trying to find words that that people didn't mistake for the for the motherhood statements that are around disability service at the time mm, and yeah. you know and but it's really it, in the end the, the yes of course words have been um the meanings being lost and it's being you know used to to mean different things and but in in the end because so much of our focus is talking directly to individuals and families and, and one person at a time, that we can, while we are frustrated by, you know, people saying capacity building and all that sort of stuff, we are, are able to explain, we have the time when we get it, to explain to people what the words mean. You know, like, so So individualization to us doesn't mean the same thing for everybody. You know, it, it means... It means knowing who you are, what what your interests are. Let's let's find what you value and who you want to be as an adult, and where you want to be as an adult, and let's follow that, and that'll tell us what the individualised support is. You know, but I but I think the 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 biggest problem at the moment with language with that stuff is the places like the NDIS coming along and saying, oh yes, you're getting individual support, and people thinking that's individualisation. There is just millions of dollars falling off cliffs um, where where people are just walking to the edge of a, a cliff with their money and throwing it over the edge because they're getting individualised supports where people are coming into their lives. They might be there for six months, they might be there for three years, but when that staff member leaves, there's no change. Mm. The person still ends up going to the same coffee coffee for the same movie without new relationships, without without different connections in their lives and stuff and, and I think that that um that that you know sort of people calling that individualized and is a bit is a bit rich yeah so Frank 40 years you know Sunbury Kingsbury yeah uh, very long history in disability the recent NDIS what keeps you awake at night around your career these days uh, n- not much. <laughs> um, uh, probably the um, the 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 thing I'd be most worried about is is people with with high complex needs um, and the and the one to one supports and and not bad people who we know uh, 
struggling intensely uh, and have nowhere to go and less and less people are taking them thanks right at the same time <laughs> at the same time can i say that for people with really complex needs we've shown that they're able to get jobs then they're able to take part in broader community things you know we've got people with extremely high needs so when I say complex needs, I'm not saying they just need looking after. I'm saying it's about creating a life. It's not just an anecdote you pull out of your bum for one success no, case in... No, we've got a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can tell you stories. But cool. Yeah. Thank you, Frank. Thanks, Frank. Okay. That's great. Thank you. You've been listening to Disability Done Different Candid Conversations. Roland and I have been joined in the studio today by Frank Krupe, the CEO of Milparinka. We're going to link some of those resources he talked about in the show notes, and we'll also put a link to our website where you can find some fantastic, if we do say so ourselves, NDIS resources. And you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter.